Hello and welcome to Signum University Thesis Theater. Uh, each of our master students writes a thesis at the end of their degree, exploring the topic of their choice. The thesis theater is their opportunity to present their research to a general audience. It's the kind of equivalent of a face-to-face -face degree having an oral defense, um, hopefully a little less scary and a little bit more casual as I'm going to have a conversation with uh, a thesis student I'm very proud to have been a supervisor thereof, Elise Trudell Cedeno. By day, she makes magic teaching literacy and literature through various homeschool platforms, including the Signum Academy Clubs. She earned her BA at Wagner College and her Master of Arts in Teaching English at the Teachers College, Columbia University. In her free time, when she has any, she fosters some very adorable kittens with her <laughs> local humane society and tries new recipes for delicious homemade pies, which unfortunately in this medium, we cannot share with you. Just imagine the wafting smell of mm -hmm. a delicious homemade pie. She now lives in rural Massachusetts with her loving husband. And by the time this thesis airs, her first child will soon be on this planet. Yeah. Well, he's, <laughs> already, he's already on the planet. He's just still with you. So congratulations for your family and congratulations on completing your thesis you. at Signum University. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your thesis? If you were going to meet somebody in an elevator and they said, what did you do your master's thesis on? Absolutely. Thank you, you Chris. Take it away. I shall take it away. Here we go. I wanted to create a, a literary theory looking specifically at modern fantasy texts. And by modern fantasy, I had the con my, my, my concept of modern fantasy is any epic fantasy story after, after the publications of uh, specifically Lewis, uh, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia and Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Um, I came up with this idea after taking some, some of the modern fantasy courses at Signum University. And I wanted to specifically look at what makes a series, what makes an epic fantasy series. And throughout my, throughout my research, I made connections to Tolkien's, um, Tolkien's concepts of the fairy story, as well as how it might apply in within a modern fantasy context. And so my thesis thesis, the thesis statement is to seri first series theory is the consolation of story. Consolation is provided in a modern fantasy series that is a series that has a definitive arc, say uh, book one, book two, book three, usually in trilogic form. It provides a consolation of story through repetition, which are repetitive elements and familiar story structures within and across series, uh, whether it's examples of, say, Campbell's Hero's Journey, the uh, same cast of characters. And if I'm thinking, I think specifically of fantasy stories that where you, you see these repetitive structures that we see in fairy tale elements and um, other and other fantasy stories. 
providing the natural escape of a fairy story through the progression and elaboration of each repeated element. It's not enough to simply repeat. The, repeti the repetitive element must be elaborated upon. We must learn more about it. And finally, closing with eucatastrophe, uh, a eucatastrophic event, the big poof, the big happy ending, the joy, the evangelion that Tolkien describes, providing an efficient stopping point to the narrative, but leaving room for a possible sequel series to continue that repetition. And so as I explored this particular idea, I found that repetition is achieved through repeated structural and narrative patterns, whether that's Campbell's hero's journey cycle, whether that's Fry's total quest myth, whether it's, you know, that fellowship cast of characters, thematic elements that we see a lot in Ursula Le Guin, as long as they're repeated over and over again throughout the series, either through very obvious ways or, or subtle ways, they must occur. Elaboration must occur based on that progression and delineation of the repetitive elements. It's the same, but not quite the same. There must be more to it. There must be something different about that repetitive element. And of course, with any fairy story or with any modern fantasy series, consolation. The happy ending must, must be definitive, but they're still leaving specific elements open to a possible sequel series. And <clears throat> go ahead. Sorry, Chris. Oh, sorry. Were you? Nope. I, I think that was my. Um, so that's my five minutes. That's my five minute right. elevator pitch. Let's give an example sure. to uh, of one of the series that you read. Now you read uh, the Le Guin Earth Sea series. Mm -hmm. You read some things by the Eddings by Robin Hobb. Yes. Um, the Harry Potter series. Mm -hmm. Those were the biggies, right? Those were the biggies. Yes. So why don't you take one of those of your choice and explain how that repetition, elaboration, consolation comes about? Absolutely. All right. So with, let's take, I'll take, I'll take David Eddings. I specifically chose the, the Elenium and the Tamale series because they were, they were a gift from my godfather once upon a time ago. And they were, they were the texts that really got me into, um, into modern fantasy. So with a closed fantasy series, and by closed fantasy series, I mean there is a definitive beginning, middle, and usually within this individual book and throughout the narrative arc. This kind of series has, you know, you start with your, here's the quest, here's the problem, here's the conflict, here's the cast of characters. And with the Eddings, particularly in the Elenium and in the Belgariad series, a lot of it's very tongue in cheek because they're very aware of these structures and they're very aware of these tropes. And they're saying, yeah, we're doing this on purpose to show you that these things are obvious and they're, they're recognizable. And so in the Elenium, for example, what repeats is the cast of characters what repeats is the adventure from point A to point B. Um, in some cases, it's 
a, a specific quest or a specific um, part of the quest in which the company has to go and fi figure out a piece of the puzzle to solve the overall quest. So for example, in the Illenium, the queen has fallen into a, a cursed sleep because she's been poisoned. And so throughout the Diamond Throne, for example, the first book, they have to go and figure out who poisoned the queen in the first place. So point A to point B, they're figuring out who poisoned the queen. And then second book, third book, the that repetitive quest structure is happening throughout the three books. But what changes, what elaborates, what progresses is the um, is the is the adventure through the secondary world. And what progresses is the is the different locations that are visited. The problem becomes more complicated. More cast of characters join in. For example, the the what David Eddings calls the evil god character. And while the series ends with the Sapphire Rose, there is still room for the Tam the Tamily to occur, for domes of fire, for shining ones in Hidden City. They take new elements and they, they take old elements from the, from the previous trilogy and they say, you know what? A, we're gonna go to a new country. We're gonna go to a new continent even. And B, we're gonna have a new set of cast of characters, but we're still gonna have the repetitive element of including the characters from before. You still have your hero Sparhawk. You still have the fabulous cast of characters from before. And we're going to put, but we're going to progress it and we're going to elaborate on it by putting it in a different space, different secondary world. And we're going to create a new problem and we're going to take an element from the previous story and expand upon it. What you think you know from the previous series isn't exactly true and we're going to expand upon it some more. And so there's still a happy ending. There's still the, okay, the problem is solved. Everything's fine. Everything's good. We've beaten the evil God person. But there's still room for a new chaotic cycle. There's still room for, there's still room for a new adventure and for something to happen. So I'm going to um, throw in any audience questions that might in, uh, enlighten or expand on what you're talking about at the time. Sure. And Serena Higgins, Dr. Serena Higgins, congratulations, doctor, um, has asked, does this need to apply to series where the author had in mind a closed series from the beginning? So like um, the Harry Potter series was conceived of as a seven book closed series, but you get into something like Robin Hobb or Ursula Le Guin and they grew in the telling. And then what's an example of an open series also? Great question, Serena. Thank you. Um, I discovered as I was as I was doing my research, I, that was actually an initial question that I have. Does an author's intention matter when it comes to the building of a series arc? I won't say that it doesn't matter, but the great thing about constellation, about the concept of constellation that I've that that sort of grew with my own thesis was that as long as the author leaves room for a new telling, then it's, then the intention doesn't matter. With Ursula Le Guin, as 
as Chris said, she was going to, uh, Ursula Le Guin was going to stop at A Wizard of Earthsea. But with each story, it grew in the telling in that with, with Earthsea, what repeated was a familiar character or um, a familiar uh, a familiar magical concept. But there was enough room to create an entirely new story. She still left enough room for this for this story to grow. And she decided when she wanted to stop. And even then, if when you go from the farthest shore to Tahanu, there's about 18 years difference in the publication in the in the in the publication dates. With Harry Potter, it's a little trickier because you have this is a definitive seven series, seven book series. It's going to start at point A. It's going to start with year one. It's going to end with year seven. And it was planned that way. And then you have the problem of the um, what people are terming, terming the eighth book in The Cursed Child. And I don't feel that's an effective sequel. That's an effective sequel to the to the Harry Potter series, A, for, for multiple reasons. One, it doesn't fulfill what, so one of the things I, I looked at when looking at Constellation, I looked at Dr. Palmer uh, Patel's um, The Shape of Fantasy. And in one of the chapters, she discusses this idea of a chaotic cycle. And, because, and with a chaotic cycle, it's like a butterfly effect. There isn't a, an exact duplicate in the repetitions. There has to be a small element that repeats. And while the and while the author of the Harry Potter series attempted to do that by continuing the story with Harry Potter's kids and Ron and Hermione's kids making a new story, the problem with it is that it's a different medium and there's a different set of writers contributing to the story. So that's something I want to continue to explore so that I can answer that that particular question more effectively. But in some, not really, no, I don't think it matters too, too much in terms of author's intentionality of the structure of the series, but it does need to be done as, as uh, it does need to be done well, and it does need to be done in a specific way. And um, to your second question, Chris, I wanted to look at what makes a, I'm sure I put the definition in here somewhere, but that's, here we go. So a closed ended series is point A, point, point B, point C, one narrative arc. Now an open ended series, that's a series in which there's no definitive narrative arc. Most of the narrative arcs are within their own texts. So book one has its own narrative arc, book two has its own narrative arc, et cetera. Whereas with an open-ended series, that's more, more books are added and they're usually uh, plot, there's, they're not connected by plot. They're usually connected by characters. Um, the Dresden Files is a really good example of an open-ended series. Um, Jim Butcher is writing about this one character. The world building is expanding, but the story arc isn't from book one to book three. It's just mini arc, mini arc, mini arc, mini arc, continuing on for as many publications that, that, one, could, that one could have. Right, like Nancy Drew, Hardy Boys, they just kept going and going and going. Exactly. 
All right. So um, Matt Cannon says, speaking of the cursed child, does the medium for each of the stories in a series need to be the same? Matt, I don't, I don't know enough to, to say yes or no to fully answer that question, but I think it makes a difference and it certainly made a difference in The Cursed Child because reading a play and experiencing a play in, in theater are two very different things. Um, you have very different experiences. It's one thing to read a script. It's another thing to see it all in action. And there are so many elements of the original seven book series in Harry Potter that you're missing with that particular medium. You're not getting a lot of, um, so in Harry, in Harry Potter, there are intertextual references, intratextual references, little surprises throughout the seven books. Um, there's the chiastic structure in which you have uh, reflections of things that happened in book one occurring in book seven. Um, for example, I'm studying um, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix with my Signum Academy Club students right now. And we just encountered Arabella Fig, Mrs. Fig, who in book one was just Harry's uh, crazy cat lady babysitter. Turns out she's part of the magical world. And we discover this in book five. She's a part of the magical world. She knows Harry's teachers. She knows about Harry's secondary world. And so you have that reflection from book one to book five. That doesn't really occur in Cursed Child. It's just, it's a story. It's a play. Things are happening. There's a plot. But the same narratological elements aren't occurring in, in a play that they are in a, in a seven book series, in this book series. It would be interesting for somebody to take that question and look at it further. I'm thinking of something like Game of Thrones, where we don't have the completed book series yet. We don't have Martin's full vision. We have some other people's vision of the last couple seasons of a TV show. And, you know, would your, would your theory apply there? It would be really interesting for, for an, another day. So a couple more questions. Um, Farah Mendelssohn, hi. And Farah Mendelssohn was your second reader. We we're really yes, excited was. that she said yes. Um, I think she was the perfect Thank person. Thank you, Dr. Mendelssohn. Thank you so much for your comments. It, they really helped. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the second reader process, sometimes we pick another Signum uh, faculty member. Sometimes we go outside of Signum when we need some expertise that we might not have uh, on staff. And so it was a really great opportunity to get an outside perspective and an expert perspective on this topic. So thank you so much for um, your, your time and comments, Dr. Mendelssohn. So uh, she's got a couple of questions right now. The Nancy Drew comment raised the issue of, does there have to be a continuous thread of story to fit your definition of series? At this stage of series theory, yes. I believe there does have to be a continuous thread. Having that continuous plot helps contain that repetitive element and helps with the elaboration stage. Um, so with the elaboration stage. Let me actually share my slides again and I can show you. Yeah. Um, the idea, and this is an idea that was born out of seriality studies. Um, seriality studies usually focuses on open-ended series and in, on children's literature. And so part of my thesis process was taking 
uh, structuralism, taking the school of fantasy structuralism that uh, Dr. Mendelssohn is familiar with and that uh, people, um, other scholars like Brian Atterbury, Edward James are familiar with and melding them with this concept of seri children's literature, seriality studies. How does the serial, how does the serial nature or the, or the nature of the series change the story or how does it affect the story? And so with elaboration, you're looking at where the repetitions change. And to your question, Dr. Mendelssohn, I think it, it, does, it does matter because you're looking at where perhaps the beginning of the story, the beginning, beginning of the plot needs to elaborate and needs to change in order to create that arc, in order to create that, that narrative arc. So to take Harry Potter, for example, I do need to know what happened in book one in order to understand what's happening in book five, six, and seven. Um, Suman Gupta looks specifically um, in rereading Harry Potter. Um, Suman Gupta looks at, um, has a chapter called um, repetition in, the, in, in Harry Potter. And so with the progression of the Harry Potter series, we're learning more about the magical world. We're starting in book one with Harry being very uh, quite the novice, never having seen anyone perform magic before, let alone understanding what his part is in the magical world as someone who is a famous figure and someone who actually had a hand in bringing down the Dark Lord the first time. So that by the time we get to book four, book five, he's, Harry is starting to understand what he needs to do in order to take down Voldemort again. And so to elaborate, according to Gupta, it is necessary to repeat that which is elaborated. And so one example he gives is his con uh, Harry's conflict with, um, one of the examples that Gupta gives is, is Harry's um, conflict with Voldemort. In the beginning, it was just, okay, poof, Voldemort's gone. By the middle of the text, we not only do we, by the middle of the series, not only do we have to defeat Voldemort again, we have to defeat Voldemort in a new way. So we have to relearn what we found out in books one to three, and we have to learn something different about the conflict in five through seven. So this plays into um, Dr. Middleson's other question, which is um, she likes the idea of repetition. Do you see that escalation within those repetitions is a necessity? do authors have to up the stakes as the series proceeds? Hmm. Have to, I'm not sure. I think it certainly helps to up the stakes in terms of elaboration. At the very least, the repetitions have to be whether the repetitions are subtle or stark. And this is a concept in seriality studies. It's the differences in the repetitions that really matter. And what do these repetitions reveal about the major themes and elements of the stories? So upping the stakes certainly helps, but sometimes these repetitions can be extremely small and they can be moments that say, ooh, okay, that's a cool thing I didn't know before. And now this helps me understand my, the world a little bit better. Uh, taking an example from the Elenium. Um, 
one element that we might notice is the the city Kyrellos, for example. Um, one of my favorite parts about elaboration was looking at not only crossing the fictional landscape thematically, but literally crossing the fictional landscape through maps. Uh, we start with this with the with this, the, with the holy city of Kyrellos. This is the religious center of um, of the continent of, of the fictional continent of Eosia. We start in the beginning with the leader of the church, the the pope. This is very this is very much fit, um, mod, This story religious structure is very much modeled on um, on the Catholic Church, and so the pope is the pope is dying. The pope uh, the pope figure is dying, and all of the cardinal figures are scrambling, trying to figure out who the new person is going to be. So in the beginning, it feels like a really kind of throwaway moment or something that, okay, we don't need to worry about right now. It's not an emergency situation. But in the final in the final text in Sapphire Rose, it's a big deal. And it turns out that having the right Pope figure, the right person elected to be the leader of the church makes a really big difference in their in their quest against the in their quest against not only the the antagonist but also the um, the deity the evil deity figure antagonist in the story. So I hope that answers your question, Dr. Mendelssohn. Um, it it really depends on how that repetition is used and how those repetitive elements are used. Sharon Hoff suggests that maybe the stakes were always high, but perhaps unknown to your viewpoint characters. And so it seems that the stakes escalate as, as they're revealed to your viewpoint characters. I think that's a good comment, Sharon. Um, oh, we have a question from Dr. Cheryl Palmer Patel. I know she just had that, that starstruck moment. <laughs> a little bit. Elise, have you found a significant difference between series with a sustained narrative arc throughout and series which have a series of connected narrative arcs like Hob or Good Kind? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, I feel that at least with Hob, Hob does a really good job of Ooh, sorry, I rhymed. Um, <laughs> Hob, does, Hob does a really good job of keeping that sustained narrative arc throughout all of the books that, at least in the Elderlings series. Um, Hob has written other, other books that um, that are part of a different, that are part of a different world. And so with so if you look if you look down at this image right here, we have three trilogies, one quadrilogy. That's it. That's a, a four series, um, a, a four book series. And so each each of these series have their own sustained narrative arc, but there is a connecting element between each series. And so it's interesting to note that at the very least with the Farseer trilogy, that's the first one. I'll tell you what, I'll turn on my spotlight so you can actually see. So with these three series, Farseer, Tawny Man, and Fitz and the Fool, 
the same world, the same country is focused on, as well as the same character sets. However, with Mad Ship, um, with the Live Ship Trader Trilogy, and with the Rainwilds Chronicles, not only is there a focus on a different part of the Elderlings world, it's a different cast of characters, but there is at least one repetitive link from the previous series um, in that, that links the entire series set together. And I don't know if I could say I found a significant difference between series, um, but I found that having those connective narrative arcs speaks a lot to your, your notion of the chaotic cycles and the breaking of the equilibrium that you spoke about in, in your book in chapter nine, because there's, whether it's a really big difference, an entirely different chaotic cycle, but connected through maybe just one tiny little link that creates a really interesting sustained narrative, even if it's that small. And so by the time you get to Assassin's Fate, all of these tiny little links within Farseer, Liveship, Tawny Man, uh, Rainwilds, they all come together in Assassin's Fate. So I think that's, that's a question that I would love to continue exploring in the future. Um, but I would say, I don't know yet, but I'm really excited to find out. And I think Hob is a great example of how the sustained narrative arc and connective, connected narrative arcs can make a difference in the story. Lots of great questions from the audience. Thank you so much. That makes a thesis theater really come alive. Um, and keep keep it up. I had a question from Sparrow Alden, our own Signum Sparrow Alden. And she wants to know a little bit about your selection process. Why, how did you decide what books to look at? Um, was it because you teach elementary and middle grade students or what was that process? That's a great question, Sparrow, thank you. Um, my concept originally was, firstly, I wanted to look at at least one series within the decades from Tolkien and Lewis, because they were my, Tolkien and Lewis's uh, series were the first, I want to say sort of my master concepts of what a series might look like, because in publication history, those are, those are the ones that, <laughs> those are the ones that, um, kind of started the, the trend of the closed arc narrative series. And so many interesting questions about, um, about Lord of the Rings and Narnia and how they do or do not meet series theory have to put on hold for now because they're just, they're just there, they are a set within themselves. But what's relevant is that they kind of started, they started the trend. Um, that's when authors like say Peter Beagle, Peter S. Beagle, uh, Ursula K. Le Guin and other, and Susan Susan Cooper started writing um, familiar fan these this sort of structure of fantasy series. So I wanted to see what that looks like, say in the 1960s, 1970s. And so at the very least, I wanted to say, okay, I've got one case study from each decade, and some of them do overlap, especially Robin Hobbs series because those were developed from the 90s to the present day 
And because there are so many series arcs within that entire, um, within that entire world. So firstly, it was, it was decades. And secondly, it was, this is a lot of books to read. So let me go with ones that I've actually read before. Um, and so that was then like, a, and this actually kind of speaks to um, a future question um, that one might have, what, like, how do I approach my thesis? How do I decide what to do and what to read? Go with what you know. And so I know Harry Potter. I know the Elenium and the Tamily. Um, I had read most of Robin Hobbs. I still had a little bit more. I still had a few more books to read for there. And so um, part of it was, so I would say that part of it was, was for uh, having a case study from each decade and to going with what I knew and what I was, and the books that I was familiar with and that I loved. Uh, that brings up Dr. Brown, Dr. Sarah Brown's question. Welcome from the other side of the pond, Dr. Brown. Were there any ideas or even books that you wanted to include in your thesis, but you had to cut for space or word count? So other books or ideas? Yes. And I will go to my slides once again, because I wanted to, I wanted to start with Tolkien and Lewis, because of course it's Tolkien and Lewis and it's Narnia. Um, my initial thoughts were that these would be the model for my series theory. And I also really wanted to look at, I wanted to look at the fairy story. I wanted to look at um, Tolkien's essay um, on fairy stories and say, okay, so, uh, my initial idea was that series theory was a fairy story. That's the, a, a series is a fairy story. And how does it meet recovery? How does it meet escape? How does it meet Tolkien's concept of consolation? And it turned out that that didn't really work. <laughs> so at the very least, I could look at the Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers, and The Return of the King as a series, sort of as a series arc. But the problem with the with, with, with this series is that, A, Tolkien did not, in fact, completely rejected the idea of his series being a trilogy. Um, and I do make a note of that in my thesis, I promise. And two, while there are the repetitive structures there and you have the escape, you have the consolation, there isn't room at Return of the King for that chaotic cycle or that, that series sequel. We have the publications of the Silmarillion, but those are more of a, a prequel or that, that those stories are more of a, in talking about the beginning of the world. And so it just, it didn't really fit. But at the very least, it gave me the idea of, okay, why a trilogy? Why do we keep seeing trilogies on the shelves? Um, with Narnia, why do we keep seeing septologies? on the shelf? Why do we keep seeing seven book series? And those are the initial questions that I had because, you know, when I go into a bookstore, I see a trilogy. I see a fantasy seven book series. You know, it's rare for me to, for me as a consumer to see a single fantasy story within like just one book, a single narrative arc within one book without a sequential publication. Um, so there were some, there are some elements in Narnia that I would love to explore, such as 
publication order versus chronological order. I kind of had to grind. Um, I could, I, and I, I kind of had to grind my teeth a little bit because, in the concept of of this current thesis, the order of the books doesn't matter, and you can tell that I'm really struggling to say that because it does matter. Publication order really matters, but. Within the context of this series, it, 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 there are some elements that occur within series theory, but then there are some elements that just don't. For um, There's a tiny bit of elaboration from book to book, but by the time you get to Last Battle, once again, there's no room for an effective series or an effective, seri uh, an effective series sequel. Once it's Last Battle, that's it. It's over. It's done. And while that was my initial idea in when coming up with Consolation, that boom, there's a catastrophic ending and it just stops. I found that that wasn't the case with, all, with my case. I, I found that that just didn't happen with my case studies, that there, there is this pattern of leaving room for a sequential series or a sequel. Yeah, I mean, we uh, get started on these series and I, I, I haven't had a student yet that hasn't had to cut something out. You just have to really focus on what you're going to look at. But this um, brings up James Tauber's question. Hi, James. Um, where would you like to go from here with your series theory and your research? Where would I like to go next? Well, um, great question. I would love to talk a bit more about specific series. I'd like to focus and see. So this was the development of the theory itself. Now I would like to see how it might, how they might apply to other, not only other closed-ended narratives, other closed-ended series, but perhaps an open-ended series. Um, where does that lie? Like, where does the concept of how does how does series theory change from a closed-ended narrative to an open-ended series? How will it? Is, is it completely nixed in a series like Jim Butcher or, um, or is, it, is, it, is it rendered irrelevant in, in other series that have to maybe, that maybe don't necessarily have to do with uh, perhaps with more magical realism? What I focused on was very much the modern fantasy epic. Like you got your knights, you got your magic, you got your wizards. Very, the structures are very much based on uh, camp, the elements we might see in Campbell's journey in Campbell's hero's journey cycle with, you know, you have your, you have your hero, you have your, um, you have your world building with all of the magical, um, with all of the magical criteria. Maybe that looks different in say a series with magical realism, or maybe that looks different in an open-ended series like Jim Butcher or other ones that, don't necessarily have an overarching narrative. So what does that look like? And what does series theory look like in other contexts? And I also know that there, that uh, this, that these structures that I focused on were written by people who claimed like Cloud Le Levi Strauss, um, Northrop Fry, and um, Joseph Campbell made claims that these story structures are universal. However, as we're developing our, our concepts of modern, modern story and expanding our worldview from 
European Western tradition to other cultures, that's not necessarily true. There are different story structures in other cultures. Um, so does series theory apply in say, Afrofuturism and African Jujuism stories? Does it apply in indigenous sciences? Does it apply in stories about indigenous futurism? So understanding a little bit more about what makes a, a story structure could really change series theory. And so that's something that either I could explore or somebody else could explore one day and say, no, I completely reject your theory. This is incorrect based on what's going on in this particular story structure and in this particular set of stories. Okay, great. I would love to see that. Sharon, Sharon is, oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, just, yeah, Sharon is suggesting that you apply it to other um, mediums or might apply it to other mediums, media. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. And help it think of Firefly. I always think of Firefly, Sharon. Thank you for bringing that up. We always think of Firefly. And that's a, that's a big concept that's developed in recent seriality studies. Um, in, in seriality studies, it used to focus just on books. Now it's developing to focus more in addition to um, book series, also television series, movie series. Um, some of the comparisons you made earlier, Chris, to Game of Thrones making those comparisons between the book series and a television series. Those are concepts that are starting in seriality studies and are looking, are being looked at today. Um, and I would, I would love to, I would love to continue working with that. Um, I just noted in my thesis that with seriality studies, there's a, there's a specific focus on what's, what the repetitive elements are and not so much on the structure of the series. And that's what makes a difference in my particular thesis where um, for me, the structure of the series and how it's built very much matters. Whereas in seriality studies, it doesn't really talk too much about that. It's more about here's a repetitive element from A to B. Here's how it differs a little bit. Here are the themes that it, that it talks about. So, uh, I can see that Dr. Dickison wants to carry this on with um, Narnia and Planet, Planet Narnia, Michael mm -hmm. Ward, and uh, some other folks have typed in their suggestions. What should people do if they're interested in maybe taking your theory and applying it to other things? How will they get a copy of your thesis? Um, we will be posting the thesis on the library website. Yay. So at the very least, the library website will have a copy of my thesis. And I also, I came up with some of these questions so that this is something that anyone could take with and use my theory. Um, I have initial questions that one could use when analyzing uh, a series with, so within the thesis, I, when talking in my aims and methodology section, I have a list of questions that one could ask when looking at each individual um, each individual book or series. Um, and so with, with that particular section and with these questions, you can say, okay, how does my text, whether it's, or how does my medium meet or deny these tenets of series theory? Does it 
is there a progression from story structure A to story structure B? Um, where are some of the differences between these different mediums? Or um, what happens when I analyze a TV series versus a book series? Um, like I said, this, is, this was very much focused on book series as opposed to a television or uh, a trilogic movie. Um, I would also highly recommend um, taking a look at some of my sources. I'm going in the wrong direction, there we go. Um, so in my literature review, I uh, these were my um, these were some of my key my key resources. Um, Dr. Palmer, Palmer Patel. Um, I looked at I also looked at the uh, Cambridge Companion to Fantasy Literature. Uh, Brian Atterbury has a great section on structuralism there. Um, and Kari Mounds talks uh, one of the chapters uh, talks about reading the fantasy series. Um, and there are a lot of ideas in this particular text that one could expand upon. If you want to look at what seriality studies is and how it develops in children's literature, or even in different mediums such as television series, et cetera, or television series based on children's book series, the Seriality and Text for Young People book has a lot of great chapters on that. And so where can, where can this be taken to next? Who knows? Have fun with it. Um, look at the initial questions in my aims and methodology section. Uh, come up with your own questions and say, here's what I found. So I think the full um, thesis, your full thesis will be behind the Signum firewall. So if anybody wants um, a copy of your thesis, they can probably contact you. They can actually contact the librarian at signumu.org, which happens to be me. And uh, with Elisa's permission, I'll also share that with anybody who, who writes that. So I wanna switch gears uh, a little bit here as we uh, come to um, 10 minutes before the end of your thesis theater. Look at that, that went fast. A couple of the series that you looked at have come under scrutiny of their authors' uh, beliefs or behaviors. How do you approach working with um, texts that a lot of people just want to cancel or not even look at? Or um, if you're in the middle of something and something pops up about the author, like how do you deal with problematic texts and their authors? Whew, that's a fun one. Yeah, I discovered a few things about um, some of the authors um, when doing my research. And I think the first step is to recognize the problems. And I was very purposeful in writing an acknowledgement in my thesis saying, A, I do privilege uh, the European Western uh, tradition. And it's okay to say that and it's okay to do that in the sense that this is simply what, this is what we have. And um, this is the tradition that I'm starting with. And also recognizing that there is still so much more to do. Like for example, like, like I said earlier, what is true in the European tradition story structures may not be and most likely is not true in a genre like 
indigenous sciences or indigenous futurism. And so leaving room to say, this is incomplete or this is just a beginning, feel free to take it where you will, was really important to me because I wanted to say like, this is, this is a theory that's going to grow and this is something that's going to change over time. And to treat the subject material it is helpful to it is helpful to take Roland Barthes' approach, uh, uh, the death of the author, and that analyzing the text as the text for for what it is, but also acknowledging that these authors did cause some of these authors did cause harm and had really problematic worldviews or personal views, and to say these are these are the views that I reject, but I also recognize that they may be hurtful to you and harmful to you, and so take my thesis as you will, you know, if you, if you want to say, you know, I can't read this thesis because it focuses on an author that really hurt me. I can't, I would not even want to conceive of forcing you to, I, I wouldn't want to conceive of forcing anyone to read my thesis. Let's be honest. It's just, you know, sit with it and roll with the punches and say, okay, this causes harm, how can I lessen that harm? And how can I at least say that I'm sorry? In a, in a, in a way that doesn't just sweep it under the rug. And I hope I achieve that, I do. I, I will not, I'm not gonna stand on a pedestal and say that I'm gonna, you know, I'm not gonna stand on a pedestal and say that, you know, you know I'm sorry, but deal with my thesis anyway. I'm gonna say, you know, I hope that this is this is a thesis that makes sense and that if there's other ways to use my thesis without these particular case studies or without the without harmful authors then please do please take it and and you know write your own or um invite or or ask me additional questions about another series um that i might not be familiar with um there's more work that i can do I can learn more about indigenous sciences. I can learn more about African Jujuism. I might be a bit more careful about how I write it simply because that's it there. It's not 100% my story to tell, but can't hurt to learn, I suppose. It sounds like good advice for, uh, for students who are approaching their own research in the Signum program or elsewhere. Uh, what other advice do you have for students that are about to um, embark on their master's thesis or a large research project? What kinds of things did you learn or you wish you knew before you got started? Um, I might have planned my pregnancy a little bit differently. <laughs> well, well, but <laughs> that's life. That's life, you know. Doing research while in the in the throes of morning sickness, I wouldn't I would not recommend. But if it happens, it happens. And to that, I would also say, write. I, I would say lean on your lean on your people, find your people, um, to help you to support you. Um, listen to your thesis director for sure. Um, they 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 know what they're talking about. Um, there were moments where I'm like, 
I don't know, Chris, I really want to focus on this. I really want to do this idea. I really want to talk about Narnia. I really want to talk about Lord of the Rings. And nope, doesn't work. Gotta crunch it. See number six. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So if you don't get to write, if there's an idea that you want to explore, you, it just doesn't fit within the scope of your thesis, save it for later, save it for another paper. Um, I also highly recommend going to Writerspace. Writerspace is a fantastic way to get your writing done with support. I, some, there are, there are people in this world who can say, okay, I'm going to sit for 20 minutes every day and write. I am not one of those people. I need someone to cheer me on. I need some, I need an assignment. I need someone to say, okay, at, on Tuesday at one o'clock from one o'clock to three o'clock, you were going to, you're coming to writer space. You're going to sit down. You're going to write your thesis. This is when, what you're going to do. So it is, and writer space is led by our beautiful Sparrow Alden. And if you go to the Mythgard Institute website, you can see the schedule and you can register for writer space and, you know, come and go as you please. But it's, it's, it was, writer space was really helpful for me to have that set time to write every week. Um, because a lot, sometimes you do have to be rather a little, a little, a little disciplined in your writing and in your research and having that space to do that within writer space was very, 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 very helpful. <laughs> um, but yeah, just enjoy your classes now. And this, this particular thesis was actually born out of a question that I had when I was taking modern fantasy too a lot of the texts that we were looking at were the first book in a series. And so I just asked the question, hey, does it matter that we're not reading the rest of the series? What am I missing? What am I, what's included? Um, and then it grew into a paper topic. And then unfortunately that was March of 2020 when the initial stages of COVID hit. And so I wasn't able to write the paper the way that I wanted it. And I wasn't able to write it I wasn't even, I wasn't even able to complete it really. And then I thought, wait a second, I can write a thesis. And it was really helpful to say, you know what, I can write a thesis. And this is, this, this idea is roomy enough that I can include all of the books that I ever want that I love. I can include all of the things and all of the ideas. Whereas before I was thinking, okay, do I want to write about Harry Potter? Do I want to, do I want to write about the Chronicles of Narnia? Do I want to write about Robin Hobb? Lo and behold, I can do that. So write what you love, have fun with it, find your tribe, find your people, listen to your thesis director, go to writer space and keep a list of ideas that of things that you might have to cut or that you're thinking, ooh, this is idea I can work on later so that you can work on it later. Speaking of later, in addition to becoming a new mommy for the first time, Congratulations to you and your hubby. Thank you. Um, what's next for you on the scholarship front now that you have almost completed your degree? Oh, uh, first, Dr. Mendelssohn suggests having an internet blocking app. You can set a timer for 30 minutes or longer so that you're not. 
interrupted by texts and pop-ups and all sorts of things. All right, so mm -hmm. what's next? What's next? I would love to publish. Um, I'd love to write some more about series theory. I would love to write some smaller or um, some smaller articles and different on different case studies with the series theory. Um, but what uh, I would love, and I would love to get my PhD one day, either using series theory. Um, my other love is teaching and and teaching fantasy literature. And so I've always been really, in, even, even when I was in teacher's college, before I even knew that Signum University existed, I was thinking to myself, okay, how do I use fantasy texts to help students learn to read, to help students who are struggling with reading comprehension or reading or have reading difficulties? And so that's something I would love to continue to, I would love to continue to explore. And I do explore in my blog. Um, I, I have a blog uh, that I call Teaching with Magic. Um, I talk a lot about the work that I do, uh, the classes that I teach on outschool.com. I talk about Signum Academy clubs, and I've just started teaching with um, Signum uh, space modules for, um, for uh, adult continuing education. And I would love to continue to explore how to use these fantasy texts and how fantasy texts really draw students in and draw um, draw draw readers in. Okay, how do I use that to help students who are really struggling with reading, motivating them to read, or even using? Um, I've been I've been studying a lot on of um, the science of literacy, so breaking down um, breaking down words, uh, linguistics, uh, looking at lingu early linguistics. Um, and looking at just ways that I can use magic or world building to get students interested in learning how to read and in continuing to read as they grow older. So that's that's something I would love to explore one day. We'll see. But first, baby break. First, first, yeah, I'm gonna first I'm gonna focus on one little halfling and then I'll focus on more little halflings and their reading skills. Well, congratulations on all fronts. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, that was your final checkbox that you needed to complete the MA in language and literature from Signum University. So congratulations. I'm sure everybody else congratulates you. you as well. It has been a delight to work with you um, through this Thank process. You. And I hope we continue to work together in the future. Lots of congratulations pouring in from um, our almost two dozen attendees today. So thank you. And I hope other people will watch this recording later. I really want to thank um, those of you who um, tuned in from outside of Signum. It really helps um, our, our students to get these uh, outside perspectives. Sometimes we work in, in uh, our Signum silo. And mm -hmm. so it's really wonderful to get the comments from folks who are just coming to Elise's thesis um, fresh and all the feedback that we got from our second reader, Dr. Farrah Mendelson. I just can't stress enough how useful that was for um, the final version of Elise's thesis. Thank you. That, that is it. Thank you so much for sharing some of your day with us. And uh, again, you can uh, contact um, librarian at signumu.org if you're interested in getting a full 
copy of this or other of our theses. Um, if you're interested in following up with uh, Elisa's work, you can follow her on Teaching with Magic blog. Yes, I'll put a, actually I'll put a link in there right now. Yeah, I think, I think Brendan did that, but yeah, go ahead and do that again. Um, it is I, a cool silo though, Sarah, but we have to, cool we can't stay in our silo forever. We Sometimes we need to branch out a little bit. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, happy, happy I just want to say baby oh, yes. to you as happy well. So. Thank you. Um, I just want to say thank you to you as well, Chris, for supporting me throughout all of that, uh, all of this craziness. Um, and a major, major thank you to um, Dr. Sara Brown, uh, to Sparrow, and to Sharon, everyone who, uh, everyone at Signum who supported me throughout this thesis, and of course to my family for supporting me when I said, hey, I'm going to get a master's degree in um, I'm going to get another master's degree after getting two more after after having two previous degrees. I'm getting in fantasy li literature and sure, why not? So thank you to my family. Thank you to to you, Chris. And thank you to Sarah, Corey, Sharon, Sparrow, everyone who has supported me throughout uh, this whole thesis process. It's been it's been a wonderful adventure. Well, you got to the top of the mountain. You're standing there now. Enjoy the view for a little bit before you embark on your next journey as a new mom and graduated scholar. Thank you. Congratulations, Elise. Thank you all for coming. And that will wrap it up for this version of Thesis Theater at Signum University. Bye. Thank you.